This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, Robbie. Hi, Ernie. How's it going? Ah, it's all going well. Great. Huh. It's been uh, almost a month, it seems like. Oops. Uh, I it was the week before. I think, yeah. Uh, oh, the... The I tried to call you again. Yeah, I think your call was also calling me here, this recording system, so I just <laughs> blocked that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So last time we talked was right before the Missions Fest. Okay. The early November, yeah. Yeah. So how did that go, finally? Uh, I would say several really... episodes. We, uh, we, I had helped line up uh, two of the three plenary speakers and... Uh, a lot of the workshops and uh, there was the turnout was small this year compared to other years, but the content was top notch. And uh, I think uh, we got a good experience presenting some really significant perspective on what remains to be done and how that might be pursued and how people might collaborate in that. So it was all. Good. Uh, and we had extensive discussions about the mask mandate going right. up to that and uh, various back and forth with different committee members. Uh, uh, was it resolved? How was it resolved? Um, well, the, uh, they maintained what they had planned in terms of um, stating that attendees are to wear masks. But as uh, they indicated to me and I shared with others who thought my concern about that, uh, they didn't, you know, uh, make a scene or object or push anybody to uh, wear a mask. So there were a number of people throughout the time that uh, weren't masked. And I think uh, it, you, you were concerned my, about some awkwardness in some, with some particular relationships. Did you have yeah. any interactions with those people? Uh, yeah, I, you know, all these are friends and uh, co-laborers. So, uh, but it was it, it wasn't awkward as I had feared it would be. So that was uh, that was a relief. Good. So you're able to participate more or less fully and interact, and yep. it basically turned out to, sort of, at the end, almost be a non-issue. Yeah, you know, my part of, part of my concern is the uh, the number of people that may not have come because of the um, presented policy, and right. Also also, the uh, the um, the sense that the the promotion of uh, simply complying with whatever we're asked to do in a global situation where increasingly Christians are being persecuted and are uh, often needing to make difficult decisions about what's God calling them to do um, in contradiction with the government. Uh, and there was a significant emphasis on persecution and persecuted believers, so it seemed a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, a bit uh, misaligned. But um, you know, we uh, we got through it. So. Okay. Good. And then you've also had a, another round of legal issues with your family. Yeah, it's uh, the um, there they persuaded the court. To require things of us that are not normally required. Um, we, uh, my dad asked us to become trustees while he was still alive as trustor. And during those mm -hmm. three 
half years, we were, uh, I guess, just under three. Um, our only accountability to him in terms of the finances, but now the court has approved their request uh, or their demand for us to provide an accounting from 2004 to 2007 uh, after lawyers throughout the years have told us we weren't required to provide that. So now we have to find a way to go back and show a good faith effort. And I think I may have records that would allow that, but it's, a, it's an added time burden. Um, yeah, but my my you know my siblings have persuaded themselves since 2003 that uh, our reason for helping dad was to try and take advantage of his finances, and they're just mm-hmm. desperate to find some evidence that we did that. And so if we can demonstrate that we didn't, you know, you know we demonstrated from 2007 to 2021 that we never been uh, that we didn't even get compensation for being trustee. Um, so, uh, well, I don't know why I think we would uh, cheat before and then change uh, our character. But uh, if we can, if we can, if I can put together something that they can't, you know, find fault with, and maybe that will be of some benefit. I don't know what you do. You know, I'm not used to dealing with people that are just determined to think the worst. Uh, and uh, how do you, you know, how do you satisfy that? Really, you're not used to it. It seems like you've had experiences like this in the past. From what I well, just just with my family, um, I you know we we've worked in, in a community with global Christian leaders, and uh, we've never been in a position of power or other where you know what we've done has been questioned like this that I can think of. Ah, okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, just thinking through our experiences with the Great Reset, and I've had uh, many contacts there where I certainly know what that feeling is like. Uh, yep. Where, and frankly, I think I've been in situations where I felt the converse, where I felt like I was being unjustly treated, uh-huh. and I was in this mindset where, like, it was really important to me to prove that the other person was wrong. Uh huh. In fact, I think that you. Uh, made a similar observation um, in this context of, you know, where words are many, sin is not absent. Well, I was thinking about my my tendency to, uh, uh, even even maybe with the uh, mask, to uh, just try and um, get my point across when uh, that was not really the core issue in there. In uh, Missions Fest, they had to work with volunteers who had strong convictions that weren't going to be changed. And, uh, pushing them right. to accept my position wasn't uh, wasn't constructive or helpful for them. Yeah, but what was interesting is that uh, I'm reading this, uh, I guess, fantasy novel series, The Misadventures with my son, and um, it's mostly sort of tongue-in-cheek classic. Comedy. It's actually consciously modeled after the old uh, um, Bob Hope and Dean Martin comedies. If you remember any of those, The Road to Morocco or whatever. Anyway, maybe before your time or outside your cultural sphere. Anyway, it's mostly kind of silly and slapstick, but every now and then he kind of launches into a little bit of a, a uh, sort of career advice where a character will say, oh, you think it's easy being a cop? Well, it's like this. Or you think it's 
you know, Tupperware controlled that you could model. Well, no, it's like this. And so he has these little moments where he goes into sort of uh, 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 teacher mode. And one of them is where uh, two char a character from a previous, a side character from a previous book uh, it is sort of stalked by his wife who wonders why he's been like absent for so long. It turns out in this story, he was actually a genie and locked in a bottle for three years, but uh, his wife doesn't believe it. <laughs> and so uh, uh -huh. they get a big squabble. But what was fascinating is that his bodyguard, who's actually a mob enforcer, it's that sort of parody, um, says like, you know, and these guys have been like attacked by demons and vampires and all sorts of things. But then this is the first time he sees his bodyguard freak out. And he goes, boss, whatever you do, get out of here now. Like, it's like, and he was like, you've been in some really strange situations. Why are you so upset that I'm around a husband and wife fighting? And the bodyguard says, well, it's like the cops and I, we agree on one thing, which is that the most dangerous situation that you're ever in is a squabble between a husband and wife. Mm. And the reason he gave was quite interesting because he said that if you're in a business situation, you know, you know what the motivations are. Somebody wants to steal something from somebody or somebody wants to kill somebody, but it's really clear what the objective is. And so you can kind of predict what people will do in uh -huh. order to achieve their objective. Because uh, there's a really concrete external, you know, physical uh, deliverable, I guess, in business terms, right? So with a husband and wife, people start arguing, and it's basically about pure emotion. Uh, wanting to feel heard, wanting to feel valued, wanting to feel right. And because there is no objective thing going on, and um, it made me think about this, is that in the, um, uh, a lot of these relational conflicts that seem sort of irrational, uh -huh. Right or uh, emotional, it's um, you know it's an interesting question. What exactly is at stake? And this is something I've been wrestling with myself as I've been thinking through issues in my relationships and my spiritual development, where I feel like I'm stuck on issues of forgiveness. Uh -huh. And I think the thing is is that we don't really know what it is that we're fighting for and therefore we can't or maybe uh, we can't articulate that in a way that the other person uh can hear and sometimes we don't even know ourselves what it is we actually want right. like i think when we talked with you like you said you know there are all these things you wanted to sort of factual points you wanted to be conceded and principles you wanted to be uh, honored but there was also a sense in which, like, I definitely got the impression that um, one of the things you said that really struck me, I don't know if this was significant for you, but you said, like, I see this group making a decision that's going to get them in trouble and cause them great pain, and I want to protect them from that. Yeah. You remember, you remember saying that? Yeah, I, I think the, the direction that they went in processing this uh, 
tension uh, may undermine their future fruitfulness. But um, you know, it's a that's not. Well, well, there's two things, right? Breaking up, Bernie. You know that. Sorry, you still there? I'm in this one of these weird dead zones where the audio cuts off. Yeah, yeah. Try again. <laughs> testing one, two, three. Testing one, yeah. two, three. I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so there's, so there's, so I'm kind of breaking it down. So one, there's a perception that they're engaging in this act that is likely to cause them harm. Right. Right. Second is the realization that I care about that I, um, I'm going to use a stronger term than you might. But I emotionally identify this with these people. Therefore, their pain is my pain. Okay. And therefore, I feel I have both sort of a right and a duty to stop them from doing this thing that will cause us pain or to try to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And... And when we talked about it at the time, there was the point that, like, huh, the funny thing is we don't see Jesus doing very much of that, right? Because he sees people doing all sorts of horrible, self-destructive, dangerous things, right. and he relatively rarely intervenes or warns people. I mean, he hmm. does certainly you know, offer some general warnings of people, like, you know, don't uh, call the little ones to sin or and this and that, uh, but he rarely does it on an individual level. I like the one most obvious case is that he actually gives Judas the opposite advice. Right? He tells uh -huh. him, go ahead and do the thing you're going to do. Right. And so that was interesting to me. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you've reflected any more on that dimension of it. Um, no, that's fine. Yeah, no, nothing. Uh, that's, that's me. Oh, me, my phone. Oops, I didn't catch. I didn't yeah, catch. Sorry, my phone was my phone was beeping. Um, so I was asking if you had or had not. Either way, it's fine. Just curious whether you reflect any more on that. It sounds like you hadn't. No, I'm not sure. Even in the midst of you of the breakup if I really caught what you were asking. Okay. Uh, oh yeah. So so I wonder if you if you thought any more about the fact that in some sense your motivation was also to avoid future pain for yourself. Yeah, I uh I don't connect with that. It may certainly be true or we can deceitful. But uh it felt like uh genuine concern not for I mean well there I guess there was concern about the unity of the group um and my stance not fitting with what the rest of the group settled on. Um but I I don't I, I didn't experience that in the way that I think you're describing that and for relieving my own pain. But it, that may be what you know it may be an accurate description. Yeah uh, that's one of the interesting things and the uh, this actually gets into the other discussion we were having about like the nature of discipleship. Uh huh. Um, you know, we talked. You talked about like from your perspective. Uh, uh, actually, this is may as well just shift gears a bit. It may or may not circle back. But you made a comment. So you were talking. I, I had an interesting discussion 
uh, with my friend Randy, who did like uh, one or two videos with me on the YouTube channel, uh, right. talking about discipleship. And he and I have had sort of a tumultuous relationship in that we've worked together and we've rubbed each other the wrong way at various times. But uh, interestingly, uh, you know, we've been attending the Tuesday night prayer meeting online together for our church, which is really small. There's like three or four of us that show up. Um, but he was there and he was really feeling like the need to pray for discipleship to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing was as I was praying for God to give us new wine skin. And uh, for whatever reason, Randy really resonated with that phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to get an email I sent you. Um, and so he and I were talking, and we had a really good sermon at church in that, uh, well, it was very uh, intriguing for me because, um, one, he, he quoted uh, two of my favorite passages. One is the passage in Corinthians where Paul says, I do not come to you with form, uh, uh for, you know, persuasive words. Uh, but in fact, I just forget everything except Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. right? so the idea of going away from persuasive words to the crucified Christ. And the second he, he connected that, he also talked about the Galatians 5 passage on the fruit of the Spirit, which is something okay. I've been meditating on in various contexts. So I sent uh, to that text and printed to a few other people this idea of the, so this phrase, the fruit of the cross has been sort of sticking in my head. And this idea of, um, you know, the, the hard part of discipleship or the central part of discipleship is, is to identify and surrender uh, those parts of us that are not aligned with Christ. I talked about the logos. Right, sort of like our operating system or our narrative or way of being or whatever. And you made the observation that you saw that as uh, self-serving, I believe was the term you used, relative to just uh, hearing and obeying Jesus. Yeah, the phrase they used was self-driven. Self-driven. Oh, okay, thank you. As opposed to okay, revolution. Yeah. Right, uh, and I countered that, that you know, I saw the hearing and following as sort of self-preserving rather than self-denying. So I thought that might be a useful thing. Uh, so I'm curious in what sense you mean the word self-driven? Um, well, the, when, when I try to figure out what it is that God wants me to do, it's a different experience from listening to the spirit and quieting myself down and listening for what Jesus wants me to do. And okay. my whole nature is, you know, an experience as an engineer and all that is geared toward the former, uh, figuring it out, um, studying scripture, listening to others, praying. But um, I've had a very significantly different experience the last couple of years in uh, listening for what I what, what unexpected you know might come as I listen to the Holy Spirit. Right. So I get that. So the thing that's um, um, interesting to me is that you sort of have listened to the Holy Spirit in one bucket, and uh, all the other forms of hearing from God in the other bucket. Right. It yeah, and that's a new experience for me. Um, I, 
I used to think of all the other things as hearing from God is how I hear from God. Um, but there was a, a different quality to it and different results and fruit. Right. I understand. So you're saying that, just so I understand your progression, are you saying that before you thought of hearing from God directly as one among many, or was it that you didn't actually take it seriously at all? Um, uh, that I felt like my responsibility was to focus on my effort and what I what effort I could exert to discover God's will by studying Scripture with others and uh, doing what I knew to do with a focus more on me and what I was doing. And uh, right. yeah, and the contrast with. Um, trusting and believing that God is more interested in speaking to me than I'm interested in hearing from him and that just creating space for him to do that and uh, writing down what I think I'm hearing so that I can evaluate it rather than cutting it off as being uh, you know outside of the bounds of what I normally would filter gotcha okay um, I think that's helpful so there's uh, okay so I think I can see where you're coming from, and I can see how that is a um, um, you know a positive move in terms of being less self-reliant and more uh, uh, well actually using my framework, if I may, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way I would define what you says, okay, previously your logos, your your way of being your operating system for dealing with God was one of consciously sort of trying to figure out what God was doing. And, and then you realized that there was a better way of being, which was to um, submit yourself to God through these disciplines of listening to him and receive from him in that way. And so that is now your current practice. Yeah, here's a specific example. I've, um, as I as I began to practice, there was a specific you know, framework somebody suggested for four keys to hearing God's voice that um, mm-hmm. connected me. But as I as I practice this, which includes writing down what you're sensing God might be saying, I have uh, mm-hmm. I wrote down. Uh, as if Jesus was speaking to me, Robbie, for 40 years, you've mm-hmm. tried everything you can to serve me. Mm-hmm. And that's not bad, but that's not what I died for. I died to have joy and fellowship with you. And yes, there are things for us to do. My focus shifted from all the things that I felt I could do for Jesus and trying to squeeze in everything I could to trying to walk in intimacy with him, listen to him, uh, do what he's leading me to do, what I think of to do. Yeah. So okay. we, yes, and um, so the way that I look at it from my perspective is that you, so using my terminology, you had an old logos which was very self-driven and about trying to figure things out. Yeah. Right. And now you have a new logos, which is really about listening to Jesus. Okay. Okay. And it's like, okay, that's, I think, an improvement. Um, 
But I worry, and I think yeah. I expressed this concern before, that you're turning this new logos into sort of a religious standard, much the way you did the previous one. Okay. Right, I think you've acknowledged that. And so what I was saying is that the interesting thing for me is that, so to, the thing that was interesting, uh, and I was actually helping you articulate that, is that um, certainly sitting and journaling, the practice of sitting and listening and receiving from God is potentially, right, a way to rewrite our logos, our way of being to be more like Jesus. Right. I don't think there's anything in what I wrote that precludes that particular practice from being used. Um, and it made me sort of bristle slightly, to be perfectly honest, because I felt like you were kind of um, ignoring that possibility in order to kind of justify your categories. That may have been unfair on my part, but that was certainly an emotion I experienced. I think if I were to rewrite what I'd written before, I might say, from my current perspective, identifying and surrendering seems potentially where I'd written fundamentally, uh, potentially more self-driven than hearing and following. Right. And, you know, that's fair. But uh, here's the interesting uh, counterexample that I deal with. Actually, this is a very poignant point, moment for me in my, in my spiritual development is... Um, one of I was having a prayer time with uh, in our church back when we were doing physical prayer meetings in our office, church office, and one of the great things of the church just started praying something, and he goes, well, you know, and um, you know, and I just realized it sounded off, like it didn't match scripture, it didn't even match how this person lived their life, and and it's like. You know, and he said, well, that's just what I've heard from God. And that really shook me up. And it really shook me like, whoa, this guy's a really great man, far more godly man, has given far more for the gospel than I have. But in this area, his faith and his ability to hear from God feels like it's cut him off from me and scripture and all these other things. And I did not even know that was possible. Uh, but it really felt to me like that's what happened. And he and I talked about it afterwards and he was, you know, he said, okay, you know, you got me have a point there. I need to think through that. But it really struck me that, you know, uh, and on my own case, that there are things that I myself don't hear from God. Mm -hmm. And that just exclusively focusing on what I'm hearing and obeying uh, is that, you know, you, you, you pointed out that you had this cognitive filter that you know you tried to force everything you heard into that and so i think it's wonderful that you are doing this ultimate practice uh but you know i feel like i'm not sure if you've uh grappled with the fact that you also have that there's also an emotional filter uh, that may be that is at play in this logos uh -huh. uh, and that so the the point i think is that Ah, I think maybe this is the difference, uh, if I can make a category distinction. Sure. Like, the practice of hearing and listening to God, I think, is a wonderful practice. And we try to incorporate yeah. it in different versions of GBJ at different times, right? Yeah. But uh, the goal 
to make that the objective of the thing that we're trying, we're just trying to hear from God and obey him. That feels like the wrong objective. Okay. Maybe. Because, you know, because like the Pharisees, you know, because the, uh, well, and like I said, you know, in some, in your case, you know, it's perhaps less easy to see how this could be pathological. But I hang out in charismatic circles. Okay. Okay, and in the charismatic circles, the people who pathologically just do whatever they say, think God is telling them to do end up in some really weird places. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so, like, like to hear and consider what Jesus says is really important, you know. Uh, right. But to necessarily always obey that doesn't seem like that should be the goal. Because <laughs> there's a lot more to it than just that. Partly, you know. I don't think you would disagree, right? Well, what comes to my mind is imagining the disciples following Jesus around, um, and I, you know the phrases you use, uh, identifying and surrendering. Um, what? Uh, what? Let's see. Let me go back to where you uh, surrendering. Where our, our narrative way of being differs from that of the cross. I, I find it difficult to imagine the seeing it that way. I don't. I. I, I well, yeah, make... uh, uh, fair enough, right? But, but, but let's, let's be clear: they didn't uh -huh. see it at all, right? <laughs> Isn't that kind of the whole point of the Gospels? Is that okay. maybe for John, like none of them had any clue about what the cross was. Right, and so it until was. It, Jesus, it, it was Jesus' revelation to them over time. Um, not their effort to identify and surrender. Um, it was it was his well, 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 initiative. Slow down. Yeah. Uh, the main thing he did was die. Right. Right. And then he rose again. So they had an encounter with Jesus. Yeah. And then a series of encounters. But the question is, okay, clearly the uh, the and let me let's make a more precise definition because I think that might help a little bit because okay. you know these little one sentence things. so what I'm saying is is that there are many dimensions of the Christian life okay uh, uh -huh. some of them are things that we will do in heaven for all eternity like worship okay that's sort of a transcendent kind of a thing uh -huh. um, uh, you know I'm, I, I'm not sure about this but I think there's reason to suppose we're probably not going to spend much time confessing sin when we're in heaven Right. Uh, that may not be a thing that we need to do anymore. Um, right. We probably won't have to do much forgiveness in heaven. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's certain things that you can see as being twin, be nice, uh, as being transcendent and part, you know, aspects of the Christian experience. Um, yeah. Part of experiencing, the, you know, God in the Old Testament, like sacrifices, going to Jerusalem, which are not part of our current experience. Yeah. Right? These were things that got clearly commanded, were clearly essential for knowing and honoring and obeying God. Right? So, so the question is like season that we are in, you know, between the resurrection and his second coming or when we die, uh, the question is, what is the thing that qualifies as discipleship, as making disciples? What is the... Um, practical implication 
of teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And, you know, it, you know, this contextual statement that Jesus made to disciples using the language available to him and them to, uh, uh, you know, you know, summarize kind of what they were supposed to do. And as you know, we've been, you know, the, the missions community has spent a lot of time thinking and rethinking and rephrasing and retranslating the Great Commission because they say, okay, if you just read this naively in English, you may take a very superficial misunderstanding of this because we want to make sure we get to the real heart of what Jesus was trying to say, right? Huh? You still with me on all of that? Um, well, I think I'm checking with you. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything I said that you've disagreed with so far in that, in my sort of laying the groundwork for how I think about these things? There was, there was one phrase, but I've forgotten it now. So. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. So let me get to the punchline and I say, okay. So, so the, um, the failure mode I'm concerned about. Let's put it okay. that way. If, if you read this as just like teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, okay, yep. you could read that like in the Old Testament law sense. There's a list of rules and regulations, and you need to do yep. all these rules and regulations. Yep. And I don't think that's a healthy interpretation. Right. I mean, there's a part of that that's worth considering, but you know, you get caught up in that, you miss the point. Right. Um, so I would argue that when he talks about making disciples, the paradigmatic verse we should go to is where he says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he should deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay. And so what I'm arguing is for a uh, practical operational definition or a uh, implementable definition of what that means in practice and trying to find language that at least means something consistent with that to me that I know how to implement and mm -hmm. is a useful starting point for conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the um, uh, email I sent out this morning, I don't know if you looked at it or not, about the fruit of the cross, is, is another attempt at that same thing. It's like, okay, I think that whatever discipleship is, if it doesn't involve or lead to denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, it's probably incomplete. Yeah, okay. Okay, I agree with and so the reason I chose that phrase as identifying and surrendering, it's like, okay, the, the, uh, this pick, so part of it is this word logos that I've been playing a lot with, which uh, is typically used of Christ but is also used just to mean words and also fields of study in modern English, right? Like biology and uh, things like that. Um, and so the thing that I think that if I can do it and if I, the, is to, so the idea, the, the model I'm working with, right? The conceptual model uh, is that, uh, that we have a logos, we have an operating system that we use to make our decisions. Uh -huh. And the thing that I interpret what Jesus is saying is that um, I have to deny my logos and actually sacrifice it in order to follow him and receive his logos. 
So I, uh, here's the thought that comes to me. I, I, I agree that uh, identifying is important when there is something that is blocking. Uh, oh, phrase, identifying and uh, surrendering. Sorry, um, but I, I see that as a, not the focus or the goal, but a secondary. Uh, when Ooh, Jesus, okay. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's talking, he's taking responsibility on himself to transform us as we follow him. And John 10, uh, 3 to 4 and verse 27, where he says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Uh, to me, that's the, any, anything that's an obstacle to us hearing and following, we need to identify and surrender. But uh, ah, it's here and follow. Okay. So, so this, I think, is a fundamental difference in our perspective, which is worth yeah. exploring, yeah. right? Because to me, to follow and obey is no different than a slave. Well, here and follow, I see, is different from uh, here and obey, follow and obey, but. Yeah, um, but um, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that a slave should do that too. Um, the, yeah. the, the, right, and, and this is this idea of what does it mean for Jesus to call us friends? Or, right. you know, when a child is in the house, he is no better than a slave but he is intended to become an heir, to become a son of God, Yeah. right? And the interesting thing to me, uh, I guess it goes back to the teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, is that um, it feels like something that can be done, um, uh, as I would say, like, you know, hearing and following or hearing and obeying feels a bit sort of like it's left brain and, and hind brain, or, uh, no, sorry, it's, it's sort of left brain and frontal context. Okay, I'm going to decide to do this. Um, whereas for me, identifying and surrendering is, is sort of more right brain and hind brain. Mm -hmm. uh, surrendering is something that you kind of do at your will. It's not something you could do in your head, in, in, the, in, your, in your cortex. Uh, it, it, it is extinguishing a part of yourself that is central to your identity. And right. that is something that the rational brain literally cannot imagine. Um, and it feels to me that taking up your cross, like, and the end goal of this is not just obeying or following. I think the end goal of this is this sort of um, union uh, of oneness with the Father, the sort of ecstatic coming together. Um, you know, it, it, participating in the love of the Trinity, it's a state of being or perhaps a state of becoming that is more primal than merely a state of doing. I think what comes to mind is the image of a bride who's hearing and following the groom uh, as sure. we are. But, but like, where is she following him to? Right? I mean, the image I have is as of the bride and the groom on the marriage bed becoming one, uh -huh. right? And that oneness is the goal. And the following is both in pursuit of that oneness and a reflection of that oneness. Yeah. Right? And that, 
is, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's also worth, it's interesting, I had this discussion with this guy, Elijah, I met online, uh, who comes from a very weird sort of defined metaphysical, uh, but I guess marginally Christian community uh, where they quote the Bible and read all the same books and C.S. Lewis and blah, 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 but they interpret things very different. And we had this um, almost an argument where I was just asking, I was trying to understand uh, what he was saying about uh, awakeness, which is the term they use for salvation. Okay. And I said, the thing that I'm wrestling with is how do I relate to the old man, uh, the flesh that is in me? And he uh -huh. got like, he's like, this is not a question you're supposed to ask. Um, it's kind of the way I heard it. We're going to have a talk again this Friday, hopefully, and I can clarify exactly what's going on. But the, the, the thing that uh, came up, he talked about like, well, you know, you're a baby. A baby doesn't have to think, doesn't have to choose this. It's just born. And it's like, well, I think there's three phases, right? There's a phase in the womb where all you do is just passively receive, right? There are no choices a baby makes for the first nine months. It just grows. Yeah. And that is an aspect of following Jesus that is just that. You're just there, you just grow. Boom, you're done, okay? There's a second phase, though, where you have human teachers who train you, and you decide if you're going to submit to that, and that's not always a trivial decision, right? Uh -huh. uh, but then there's a third phase, which is an adult, where you have to say, you know, okay, now I'm going to choose what it is that I believe. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, uh, ah, this is the thing that's fascinating to me. Which son in the parable of the prodigal do you think loved the father more? Hmm. That's a good question. I um it, the older son doesn't seem to demonstrate a lot of love, um, neither in their initial response or action, but um, the younger son seems to have come to a place of um, a different kind of love through his growing appreciation with what he had with the father. And do you think that the older son could say with a clear conscience, I have spent my life living, obeying, and following in your footsteps. Right. Yeah. And uh, it seems pretty sure, clear that Jesus had wrote, spoke this parable against the Pharisees, who right. felt the same way. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say, like, okay, I'll accept, I'll concede your point that there is a way to going about identifying and surrendering uh, that is self-driven. But I would ask you to sort of uh, concede the, the opposite point, that there is a way to go about hearing and following that is self-protecting. Um, I can hear the words I'm having. I, I, I certainly have had the experience, uh, I think you described earlier, of people that are simply following what moves them and ascribing that to uh, the Holy Spirit or to God in ways that don't seem to uh, be confirmed by outside uh, observation. Uh, mm -hmm. But I also know people who, whose lives demonstrate uh, hearing from God in a way that uh, is clearly, you know, God's work in hand. So um, 
Yeah, I, I maybe that's a yes. Let me make a stronger statement, which hopefully is more precise. Okay. Simply hearing and following, Jesus, following God mm-hmm. to the best of our ability um, doesn't seem to be enough to make God happy. I don't connect with that, but... Um, yeah, but I mean, but this is the older son. It's like this son did everything the father wanted him to do. He stayed there. Oh. He worked in the field. He respected his father. He did all these things. That, you know, there's no, uh, the only thing <laughs> that the oldest son refused to do, as far as we can tell, that his father asked him to do was forgive and be gracious to his younger brother. Mm-hmm. As far as we can tell, he, he, he would like a perfect obedience perfect followership of the father except when it came to this so if he had if he had heard and followed on this point along with all the others there would have been no flaw in that right well that's one way of looking at it okay i have a different way of looking at it okay is that the operating system that he had developed to hear and obey and follow his father's wishes was um, a whitewashed tomb. Yeah. Um, that he had gotten so obsessed over be doing right by the father in his own eyes, he had utterly and completely missed the heart of the father. Right. And so what I would argue or claim or suggest maybe as a point for a follow-on conversation is that hearing and following is an essential and vital and important practice, but it is not the objective because it is never enough to get us to the heart of the Father. Well, I would try differently that uh, the hearing and following has to bring us into the heart of the father otherwise it's mere outward compliance fair enough but then there's the interesting question is that is uh, so well, uh, so what i would argue is that actually the converse is true is that it is only by hearing and obeying and trying to follow consistently that we run into the place of contradiction yeah. where we discover that the thing that we were following was not actually him, but something disguised as him. Right? Uh-huh. This is Paul on the road to Damascus. This is the yep. elder son saying, well, wait, if you were really doing this for the right reason all along, then wouldn't you be joyful and loving to your younger brother? And suddenly you discover, and I have certainly discovered this more than once, you know, about once a decade, I hit this wall, where I was, oh, crap, the thing that I thought was doing, the logos I was following, that helped me hear and obey the Father, mm-hmm. um, is precisely the thing that is keeping me from getting to the next level of intimacy and graciousness. Uh-huh. And that, to me, is what I would call, I mean, I guess you want to get tuned in, this sort of ordinary discipleship, which is this doing the things you know to do. But then yeah. there is this deepening of discipleship, which I think is actually the heart of it. 
which is the denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It's like, if you follow Jesus before you deny yourself and take up your cross, like, that's nice, but that's not really disciple. That's what I call followership, right? This is what my, my, I think I heard my rant about following Jesus. It's like the crowd followed Jesus, uh-huh. right? The, the Pharisees followed him around looking for things to, 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 to pick at, and dear God, we have not a few Christians who think that that's what it means to be a Christian is to follow around picking holes in what other people are doing and even complaining about what Jesus isn't doing right. Okay. They're still following him around. Um, and the interesting thing is that it is precisely those things that we, and this is like really what I'm trying to get to with the next level of DBJ. And I feel like this is the, um, um, the thing between us that I need to, that we need to work through, which is that there's, a, there's something beyond sort of, let's call it um, uh, simple, beyond followership, that is discipleship. And like following is part of discipleship. But what's interesting is it's kind of the third part, at least in that formalism that he gives, right? And the, the invitations to follow beforehand feel like they're um, incomplete without those other two pieces. Okay. That's at least the uh, thesis I would like to lay out to you for your consideration. And I don't know if you saw the email I sent this morning about yeah. uh, the fruit of the cross. But I, I guess that would be the thing that I would love to discuss with you if you like it. Oh, actually, I would ask you to do what I said. That I would like you to just lay it out, like do, do your practice, uh-huh. right? It's to say, you know, Ernie brought to me this thing. He would be really, you know, I, like, I'm totally fine if God says, don't, it says, you know, forget it. It's not the time. It's not the right thing. Just ignore it, right? right. And if everyone I said it to says that, I'll say, okay, God, I'm off the hook. There's nothing I need to do here. But if there is something that God wants me to do here, and this is the thing, then I really want to figure out what that is. Because, you know, I told you I got this random email from this online course problem, uh, program, Maven, who they are expecting uh, applications by the 30th for a cohort to become in January. And my first reaction was, just like, I'm too tired. I don't want to deal with this again. But it's right. like, what if there's something here that God wants to do? And so yeah. I was praying this morning, and I got this kind of download, like, yeah, this is a thing that we could do. And it ties together all these threads I've been thinking about. Um, and like, okay, so all I ask is that you just lay it together and say, God, is there something here that is worth, you know, pursuing? Because if there is, then there's a bit of a ticking clock if God wants us to do it by the 30th. So I guess I would ask you to just uh, lay it before Jesus, ask him what he thinks, and then let me know one way or the other uh, whatever it is that he says even if you do like your I like your practice just start writing whatever it is you think Jesus is saying and right. uh, let me know and I'm curious to see where we'll go from there all right sounds good all right yeah and you know to your point like it, it's a fair thing is that the uh, having practices that are um, uh, self-negating, right, of just like sitting and listening and writing down is really useful and powerful. And mm-hmm. there are very useful, uh, just like sometimes the practice of just blind obedience 
uh, is really useful and powerful. Um, and it's a good counterpoint to some of the other things. Uh, but I think it's important to figure out how to work this into a larger rhythm and yeah. a larger set of conversations. Yeah, it. it uh, and I'm not saying I know how to work them together yet. I'm just saying that I think it's this is the thing that we have to grow in. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, there's a emphasis on in scripture on uh, having Jesus at the center um, and the words identifying and uh, whatever the. <laughs> Uh, it felt like the way. But, but, uh, but, but forget those words. Here's the words that I think are the real point of the distinction. All right. Uh, the, the phrase Paul used was, I, I resolved to do nothing except Christ and him crucified. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I, uh, and sometimes, uh, the, the, like, there's a lot of people who want to follow Jesus. Uh, who like the idea of following Jesus. Yeah. There is a much smaller subset of those who are willing to follow him to the cross, to follow the Christ. Right. You know, and um, I think that distinction is an important one. Yeah. And the... Um, and this, this is the... the, the, the uh, like the fact that Peter even Paul even calls it out separately. You know, it's not just about knowing Christ, but it's knowing Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that um, I feel like there. Frankly, there's a personal disconnect I have. I mean, there's, I feel like there's a disconnect in my conversations with you. But it's a thing in me that I feel like there is. Um, it's it's sort of easy to do. It's not easy. Uh, well, it's easy until it's impossible, right? <laughs> to do the the following things. Yeah. Um, and there is this gap in our churches that that pains me greatly. The thing that I realized why I had little sympathy for you, which I apologize for, is that this is my life the last uh, at least six years. Uh, if not, you know, 10 or 15 years, is that everyone I look at, I see them like doing things that are vastly counterproductive and seem likely to destroy the very thing they say they care the most about. Mm. And that this is like every day I have to live with this, with the people I love the most. And, uh, you know, it took me three or four years of, uh, actually, at least probably five years of that, where I was just, like, really irritable and angry at all these people. And I finally had to confront the fact that, like, huh, when I say that I'm trying to help them, a big chunk of that is I don't want them to put themselves in positions of extreme pain and distress through their flaws where I have to bail them out or, you know, and it's like, so, and then the flip side is then, well, then, but if I really cared about them, I wouldn't just be trying to make them do the right thing. I would try to understand what they need from me so they can experience Christ enough so that they choose to do the right thing. And so that is um, something that I still have some resentment over, which is probably why I am less gracious than I should be. 
uh, but at least I'm having some greater understanding of that as I work through these things. Anyway, I'm well, not quite sure where that fit in, but at least I wanted to confess that. Uh, what comes to mind as we're talking is a statement our friend Jamie Winship, uh, or a practice, I guess. Come he, over. Uh, I missed what you said. Oh, sorry. Can no, you... I have to. Uh, my daughter yelled at me for a moment. I got to take care of something. Keep talking. Oh, just that uh, Jamie introduced me to the basic two basic questions to ask God in any circumstance. Now, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do? And uh, that's been helpful for me. And um, just asking that question and listening. And um, if I sense that God is, uh, you, you used earlier the idea of surrendering. And I think that uh, yielding or surrendering to the Holy Spirit, like our friend um, Cowboy Timothy had talked about, is also a, is a key element to uh, to this. It's not uh, anyway. So yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I think and, and I think that I think I actually like the way your friend um, Cowboy Timothy phrased that, which I think Jamie would agree with. But uh -huh. I, I, the, the 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 failure modes are are are, are at least less obvious because. Uh, which is alignment and assignment. Yeah, yeah. Right. And alignment versus knowledge, to me at least, is a more powerful metaphor. Right? Mm -hmm. Because in our westernized left brain culture, especially as engineers and scientists, knowing is very much something that we can apprehend with our mind. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to the Hebraic sense, which is probably closer to alignment. And again, that's that's why a lot of this is like, well, like the words are just words. Right. What's more interesting is the reality and yeah. the things that we are able to do or not do and the things that we embrace and obsess over versus the things that we let go as unimportant. Uh, and yeah. oh. thinking, thinking about this court situation, we just we're still in the midst of, I guess, but uh, at the outset, we were asking, what do we need to do to achieve the outcome we believe we should achieve? And we were assuming the outcome and in effect asking the wrong, I think now the wrong question, um, uh, not just what do you want me to do, but what do you want me to do to achieve, you know, justice or vindication or, or whatever. And, um, the uh, listening to Jesus and recognizing that he's much more concerned about uh, drawing my family to himself as impossible as that seems in the midst of this than he is about, you know, what happens to the money of my dad's estate or things like that. Um, it shifted our, uh, I mean, it, uh, we're, we're still, we're, we're, we're less attached to the outcome that we uh, believe would be best because Jesus is bigger than that and he can, you know, take care of our needs. He can bring justice, whatever. Um, so for me, there's a, a letting go of the results in a way that's more freeing to, uh, you know, however he might lead in that context. And I don't know if this relates directly to what we were just talking about, but it, what came to mind as we're talking here. Yeah. And this is one of the things that, I find it useful, like uh, the, the the phrase that I've been using about christening. It's about uh, objectively abstracting uh, enemy, 
uh, or uh, that like you know, there's this all this unfelt pain. And going back to our early thing about uh, domestic disturbances, domestic disputes, is that if you have all this free-floating pain and you don't have a focus for it, it tends to latch on to whatever sticks its head up and being provocative. Right? Yeah. I think a lot of the issues with your family, you know, their anger against you and the money is probably tied up into, you know, the bizarre dysfunctional family system that preceded it and their own complicated feelings towards their father or stepfather or whatever. Right. Yep, yep. And so I think like saying it's only about the money is vastly understating what's going on. Right. Yeah. Right. And this to me is actually the thing that, um, um, you know, that you call figuring out, uh, which is not an unfair characterization. Uh, and the negative aspects of it are very real. But there is this thing that God told Adam to do, which was to name the animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an old saying in computer science, uh, the, the two hardest problems are task coherency, you know, updating things that, as they change, mm -hmm. uh, naming things, and off by one errors. Mm. Um, a little binary humor there. Um, the, that naming things, giving things the right name is actually real hard work, but it is also, um, I think, something God calls us to do. And yeah. finding the right name for things. And, and so the, 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 the healthy side of figuring things out, I think, is trying to find the right name, not so much to um, gain control over it, but to not be controlled by it. Uh, mm -hmm. I have discovered that the feelings I do not name tend to control me. Mm. And even at work, like if we have a problem that doesn't have a name, people just get randomly angry about it. Um, mm -hmm. And that a lot of what I'm doing in my job is, is sort of re-logo things, is, is mm. trying to come up with a new logo, a new system, a new way of talking and thinking, a way of being, so that it channels people's frustration in a productive direction. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, if, if if your family had said, you know, it's impossible to imagine, right? But if they had said, I'm really ticked off about how my dad raised me and I'm going to take it out on you by tearing down this trusteeship, you know, right. there are people who would say things like that. And that would have made life a lot simpler for you. Right. <laughs> if you realize this isn't about the money, this isn't about responsibility, this is about they need someone to vent their frustration on about the, if I may use the phrase, shitty way that they felt treated by uh, your father. You know, and it's like if they had actually said that, at least you would have, you know, the, the, the physical manifestations, the legal issues would have been totally the same, but the emotional right. context would have been totally different. Yeah. You know, and this is the thing that I see as a tragedy. This is the thing that breaks my heart, is that we don't even have a clue that we don't have a clue. Uh -huh. And it's like, okay, what is it about? And and I think that like this is what the, to me the whole thing about DBJ is trying to like how can we start training ourselves to at least understand what the right problem is, or at least understand that we don't know what the right problem is, so that we go to God and we ask for help. And the best language I have found, and this is version one. I always think it's brilliant, and then you know a week or a month or a year later, I think it was totally idiotic, and I can't believe I thought that. But I got to start somewhere, right? is this idea of logos. 
um, and that the thing that's really hard that we don't even think we need to do is recognizing that our logos, our way of being, the way we're operating in the world is not that of Christ. Uh -huh. And then learning how to get better at seeing that so that we then go through the equally painful but at least clearer job of surrendering. Um, you know, is it, uh, you know, you know, like, you know, like, like Peter, right? Like just hearing the things that Jesus actually says that are totally contrary to everything we think about Jesus is really, really hard. Right. Right. Uh, you know, Peter failed miserably, um, despite everything that Jesus said to him. And it's like, okay, um, How do so? But uh, and, and that's that's the interesting thing to me is that there's this um, overlapping demand. Anyway, I'm probably rambling at this point, but I feel like we've established something. I'm not sure what, and given us some things to talk about, and I've given you a homework assignment, and I look forward to seeing what God says. Right. The homework assignment is to read the email and uh, ask the Lord or to come to a. Um, a sense of how the Lord wants me to respond, right? Yeah. Homework assignment. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. All right. Anyway, it's great to catch up. It's it's been a rough month for me without you, but um, it sounds like you've had yeah. a rough month too. And but I feel like you know it's it's you know I've had some ups and downs and some acting out in some unhealthy ways in this month because I've sort of been disconnected from everybody. Uh, you know, both because of your, what's going on with you, but things going on with my work and other people mm -hmm. also being busy. So it's been like this month of November has been like probably my least engaged since the pandemic began wow. uh, with the larger Christian community. Although I've had a couple of good meetings with some, some new friends like Jill McGill. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, so but I'm, I'm grateful for that, too, because in some ways when I have the soothing uh, comfort of my Christian friends, then I can feel good about myself and my life. And then when that's cut off and I, well, I start to discover, oh yeah, I have some resentments here. Oh yeah, I have some unhealthy habits here. It's like, okay, now these things come up where like the prodigal, I'm actually grateful for those things. It's like, oh, this helps me see where I'm far from God so mm -hmm. that I can uh, bring it back. And uh, so, I actually gave, uh, interestingly, uh, two weird, uh, two unusual podcasts for me. One was, uh, strangely, this um, uh, New Age is probably the kindest way to describe her, a New Age uh, podcaster who wanted me to share my view. Uh, so I ended up you know, talking uh, a tiny bit about Christianity, but mostly about philosophy, uh, just to have that conversation. So I'm, I'm still ambivalent about whether I should share this podcast with my friends because it's very weird and it's a very weird new age context. But I probably will post it on the philosophy list when it comes out on Thanksgiving. But the other was with a um, a ministry to ex-prisoners. Mm. And they asked me to share my testimony and how I dealt with addiction. And mm. so I talk openly about pornography and things like that for the first time live, although I can say that it in many places. And I was saying that, you know, I had kind of a bad week, but like in some ways I'm even grateful for that because now I can share from a point of brokenness and vulnerability and hope. Yeah. And that like it's possible to screw up and not be overwhelmed with shame because the goal is not perfection of behavior. The goal is drawing closer to Jesus. 
Yep, yep. And it's better to um, anyway. So um, right. it's been a month. I'm glad we were able to catch up. I look forward to talking slightly more frequently going forward. Yeah, yeah, I hope and so. What's, what's your next deadline that you have to work against for the court filings? We have a uh, um, uh, we have a uh, if yeah, let's see the uh, December eighth is a possible court date, and then there's okay. another issue that has uh, not been assigned yet a court date, and then there's a potential question of whether we should um, present a motion to the court to protect against mm. uh, things that. Oops. Uh, that we think the our the new trustees are um, doing wrong, and uh, mm. so all that uh, rolls in the future. I just uh, as uh, as I was thinking about your phrasing, and I know it sounded like you wanted to move beyond the phrasing, but um, I, I uh, where you said I define, sorry, um, I'm wondering about uh, the possibility of uh, recognizing where Jesus is, what Jesus is showing us or what the Holy Spirit is uh, wanting us to see, uh, which makes it a collaborative effort rather than uh, identifying, which to me sounds uh, personal, you know, self-driven. Um, so you could reflect on that or we can talk further. Yeah, but I, 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 but I, I don't, like I said, I think that's, that, that's certainly the intent and it's more, I'm more interested in how we actually work out in terms of the design than yeah. Uh, okay. Over the phrase. I, I do think I did say are as, as in as a plural thing rather than a self-individual thing, but that was fairly subtle. So, yeah, oh. I, I think that, yeah, so I think that the, the intents are uh, not as misaligned as it initially appeared. Right. So you, and, you do see this as a, as a collaborative work with the spirit in which we engage not something we engage to get to the place that we do on our own independently toward getting to a place of engagement. Maybe that's right. Yeah. The... First of all, like, yeah, first of all, like this is the, the thing that's, I guess, not always obvious as a, as a East, I'm Eastern enough that this is the default plural collaborative group thing, right? This is a BBJ context of like get together and together listen to the spirit, the word, yeah. the body, the blood yeah. to identify. All right. My son's wanting to get the email tries to articulate more. So the 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 you know one page email is a uh, essentially elaboration of that one line tweet. Okay, uh, good. Uh, my son's waiting to connect with me, so I'll let yeah. you go. All right. Bless. Okay. Bye -bye. God bless. Bye bye.